We open now God's Word to Acts chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And then we'll read a small portion also in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And Saul, consenting unto his death, Stephen's. And at that time, there was great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voices, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame, were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. As far in Acts chapter 8, and now we... Also open in Colossians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 6 through 15. Colossians 2 verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, Rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised Him from the dead, and you 
being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word and also the preaching of his word shortly. And let us, I'll be reading verse 5 where in this verse we see in a sense a summary of what we hope to consider from this portion that we have read. Verse 5 of Acts 8, we read, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. At this point in our study of Acts, we have been seeing a series of firsts for the church of the Lord Jesus that the church experiences. Chapter 7 ended with the first martyr of the church in the death of Stephen, which led to the first great persecution of the church. There had been some localized persecutions, the arrests of a couple apostles and then all of the apostles, but now persecution is general. And this leads to the first missionary movement. This is the theme of today's message. We, we really are here in scripture, scripture with the first missionary movement of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is going beyond Jerusalem for the first time. This becomes the first outreach to the Samaritan people. Now, of course, all of these firsts had their precursors in the head of the church, in the Lord Jesus Christ, because, of course, He was the first martyr of the church. Um, He is the first one who was persecuted. And then also we could say he's actually the first one who who began the outreach even to the Samaritans. Remember how that one conversation with the Samaritan woman did lead to the salvation of many Samaritans. But having finished his ministry on earth and ascending into heaven and sending the Spirit, when we think of the church now that was born there in Pentecost with, with, with the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and it, it is now ministering Christ to the peoples. These, these are the firsts. And what we hope to consider as we, as we um, advance a little bit here in chapter 8 are the two realms that are right before us and the result of one upon another. The first realm and this will be our first point, is the realm of principalities and powers. Um, it, it's not the first time that we, that we are faced with this, even as we studied Luke earlier and Christ's ministry. He would face um, people who were demon-possessed. That, that is something that, that is, we're aware of that was being manifested in those days. But now there's something very specific as the name of one man and a manifestation of the evil powers of unclean spirits in a different way, almost, you could say, in a, in a somewhat civilized way. 
And it brings to our attention that the, that the realm of darkness, the realm of the principalities and powers, is very varied, although it has some, some foundations that never change. And so that will be our first point. And then secondly, we'll see the realm of the Prince of Peace. It is also seen very clearly in this passage, the realm of Christ, the realm of the kingdom of God. And then our third point will be the result of the realm of Christ upon the realm of darkness. And what happens, which also proves which realm is more powerful than the other. As much as the principalities and powers have powers, they are lesser powers. And so, first of all, the principalities and powers. And we'll, we'll look at four things regarding this realm. The first thing is the simple reality that this realm exists. It is a reality. There, there are principalities and powers. This is why we read Colossians chapter 2. This, this is the phrase that Paul uses to describe the, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan and his foes. He calls it principalities and powers. And the, the, the whole idea of principalities and the idea of power is the idea of authority. It is the idea of ruling. It is the idea of a domain. And this is clearly before us. We, we find Philip and, and all the other believers are there and they are ministering the word of God. And verse 7 speaks of unclean spirits that are crying with a loud voice coming out of many that were possessed. And, and we don't just find them here, but we find a tension here as, as Christ and his message comes. It brings havoc upon this Kingdom and, and notice what's happening. Why, why are believers there? They are there because Saul is bringing havoc upon the church and making the church scatter. And as they arrive in certain areas and preach Christ, it makes the, the demons scatter, as it were. And so there's this war between kingdoms. And then, like I mentioned, there's this man singled out, um, Simon, who used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria. And so, of course, he's part of that kingdom as well. But he's part of that kingdom in a, in a different way. He's part of that kingdom in a way um, that, is, that is harder to define. It is so hard to define that the people thought it was the power of God. And we'll talk about it shortly. So we, we, we see that this is a reality, not just because of this passage that we read. It's a reality as you read the Gospels. We, we see that Christ faced um, with demons and, and devils, especially the devil himself. Um, God's word shows the involvement of Satan in this world from the very beginning and how he tempted Eve and Adam to sin. And then we see him also very singled out in his attacks against Job and what he brought upon Job um, under the sovereignty of God and allowing it and, and ordaining it to happen. And yet we see this power to destroy all of his cattle and all of his children and then bring diseases upon his body. We, we see Satan influencing the nations all throughout the Old Testament. You can be certain that every, every false god, every element of idolatry, every false religion has this 
principalities and powers behind it, fueling it, encouraging it, tempting men and women to fall prey to these devices. And the Samaritans were were part of this whole reality. Now, it's with the Samaritans that, that we really have something that can really apply this aspect of God's Word to us today. We, we saw very briefly about the Samaritans last time. Just a few words to, to summarize. Remember that the Samaritans, they had a Jewish origin. But then when, when the people of Israel were sent captive into Syria, Syria sent people from other lands, especially from Mesopotamia, to colonize that north part of Israel. So the remaining Israelites ended up mixing with those people. And it became, uh, in a sense, uh, another nation, another people. But they did claim a connection to Israel. They even called themselves the children of Israel. To this day, there are some Samaritans. It's interesting how there's been very few. It's been diminishing. There was a season in the history, maybe like 10, um, maybe 20 years ago, that there were only about 200 known Samaritans. Today, the number is more around 800 to 1,000. Very possible it is that in the early days, the Samaritans became believers and they accepted the Lord and, and they weren't so connected with Samaritans themselves and spread throughout the world. But in the Talmud, um, they are not called the children of Israel. They are called Kutim. And some think that this phrase Kutim is to suggest their being descendants of the Mesopotamian Kushites. And so the Israelite people never saw them as pure, never saw them as um, really one of them, and yet they understood they were connected kind of distantly. They followed and had as their scriptures the whole Pentateuch. Also until today, the, the Samaritans of today, they would say they hold to the five first books of the Bible that, that you and I Understand were the writings of Moses. Until today, they hold on to those. But through the ages, they, they adopted a lot of other things, a lot of um, other ways to their service. And remember in that day that Jesus met with the Samaritan woman, she had that little theological conversation and asked, um, where is it that we are to worship God? In Mount Zion, as the Israelites say, or here in Mount Gerizim, as the Samaritans say? And so they had taken upon themselves to worship God in their way, in essence. They had added a lot of things that had not been in God's Word. They, they, they stopped reading God's Word because they didn't continue from, from Deuteronomy on. And what they ended up doing was being a religious people, but worshiping God their way. And that added to the reality of darkness from the kingdom of Satan is where I really believe we have here with these Samaritans a perfect example of our own, our own lives. And, and not, not just our own country, but even all around us, almost every country, you find people worshiping God their own way. And you find elements of principalities and powers manifested in different ways. The, the more far away from God and the word a nation is, 
the more you find these manifestations of people where they do cry with loud voices and showing that there is some kind of possession, even voices that are not their own, and, and it's all this occult reality. You do find that still in many nations. And, and the closer you are to nations where God's word has had more of an impact, what you end up having is less of that um, more, more outspoken way into what could be seen as something like a civilized way. And yet it's still evil and, and bad. And this is where we see this, this Simon fitting in. He was someone whom people were following and thinking he was the great power of God. So we, we have here a wonderful example of our very day. And, and what we're going to find, God's word is teaching you and me, what, what are we to do in our very day? We, we have these challenges. We have these situations that, that you see the, the kingdom of darkness encroaching into our society. What do we do? Well, what did they do? That's, that's what we need to learn and do what was done in God's word, which is what dispels the darkness. So, so the first thing is just the reality. The second thing is to see the power. We, we don't just acknowledge that there is the reality of the powers, principalities and powers, but there is a power to it. it there is a power, but it is a power that has been subdued. And this is what we need to understand. Even though I speak here of a power, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not elevating it in any way that a believer should be afraid of this power, but we should be prepared against this power. Another, another passage that is good to read in combination with this one, as we look at, at these principalities and powers, is Ephesians chapter 6. And remember that there, Paul starts describing... All of, all of those principles regarding the, the armor of God that we are to have. But notice how many phrases he uses that emphasize that we should take this seriously. That this battle before um, principalities and powers is a real one. We are not to be intimidated by it, but we are to be prepared. And so in verse 10... Of Ephesians 6, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." See, these are, these are words that evoke power. This realm can do things, and we need to be aware of this. And, and, and we can't be naive about it. And Paul is saying what we are to do. So verse 13, he says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. The, the th thing is, if you leave one part out, you are in danger. If you put on one of these elements loosely, you're in trouble. So it's the whole armor of God, verse 13, that ye may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And then he says, verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked." 
And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So there shouldn't be any doubt that there is power to this realm. But before... um, Going deeper into that, I want to bring two more things. The first is how this power is used. It seems in many ways a specialty of this realm is the deception, the capacity to deceive. It specializes in fraud. Not only does it show its power in a visible way or a tangible way, but it shows its power in a way that is deceptive. This is perhaps the main thing we see with Simon. His fame in, in Acts chapter 8 is, this man is the great power of God. They're amazed when it says the word bewitched. It's, it's the, the word of amazed, astonished. The, the people were just taken in by, by this man's prowess and this man's wisdom or the things that he could do. It said he used force sorcery. So maybe there were things that, that were like miracles that this man could do and it enraptured the people and they attributed it to God, which means that he was able to deceive them. To think it was good when really it was bad. And this shows how, how we need to take heed what John says when he wrote in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So there are many who pretend to be good who are actually bad. And that's why Paul says that, that how do we stand against the wiles of the devil? That, that word indicates that he is sly, that he will try to trick you. He'll, he'll try to make you think that so-and-so is an amazing believer when really he is a servant of Satan. This is literally how deceptive Satan is. Now John, in 1 John 4, 1, if you continue reading, he does give us... Um, Help to understand how how do we um, evaluate the spirits in verse two after verse one of First John four he says this whereby know ye the spirit of God every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God what is John doing when he's saying that. He's, he's obviously not saying this is the only test you need. Because Satan is so deceptive that he can make one of his servants say that Jesus came in the flesh and still be a deceiving spirit. But what John is doing is he's giving us an example. An example of what we would call a cardinal doctrine. A doctrine which if you don't believe, you are not saved. And there's a difference between a cardinal doctrine and a more, what we could say, a marginal doctrine. A doctrine that is important, because every doctrine in God's Word is important, but not all doctrines are saving. So if you hold to a view of eschatology that is not held by someone else, 
That doesn't mean one is saved and one isn't. And you probably know there, there are many views of eschatology where even among Reformed and conservative believers, we differ in how exactly we see it. But those are important doctrines. We would never say they aren't. The coming of Christ is absolutely important, but we do not all agree exactly how it will end. So we are patient, we are loving. That is not one of the ways that you discovered if someone is of God or not. And John gives us an example of a cardinal doctrine. So this means, beloved, that if you meet someone and you find out that in his theology there is something critically wrong about Christ, that he is divine or that he is human, or something wrong regarding, like, if he's really the one who took on sins or if he just took those sins and placed them into Satan, there are doctrines who teach that. That Jesus didn't really take our sins upon himself. He did temporarily. He went to hell and put them on Satan. So that Satan's the one who ends up being the sin bearer. That is a doctrine of devils. And so so John is teaching us. We, we need to realize that there are doctrines that are make or break. And if somebody holds to those doctrines that are salvific and they're false. Well then that person is not of the Lord. He is really serving the realm of principalities and powers. This is exactly who Simon was. And he revealed it later, but they weren't sure yet. He was even baptized. He even became in the very roles of the church. Verse 13, Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. He was a disciple for a few weeks at least, or days. And so, so we see the deceptive, the reality, we see the power, we see the, um, we just finished seeing here the deceptive capacity, and now fourthly and lastly, and it's so good that we can talk about this, that there's a weakness in the midst of its power. We do speak of the power, and that makes us realize this is serious. But thankfully, there is such a thing, as Paul says to the Ephesians, where you can stand. There is such a possibility to be strong in the Lord. And then that you may withstand in the evil day. That means to oppose. That means to resist. And then it says, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. When, when you have the shield of faith and there's the temptations of Satan coming like fiery darts, Paul doesn't say, you know, maybe you'll be able to quench a few of them. No, he says you may be able to quench all of them. And so as powerful as the kingdom of darkness is, as much as he has his wiles and deceptive power, he's never the ultimate power. There's no final power over any believer coming from that realm. We do have a sword, and it is meant to pierce and kill sin. There is a helmet that protects our life. We, we, we have a breastplate of righteousness, so no matter how many temptations, He can never turn us around to become one of His anymore. And there is all prayer for us to use it and to make use of it. And the question I could ask is, in, in all of the temptations that perhaps you have suffered or, or undergone, do you ever pray enough? 
And when you, when you hear saying all prayer and all supplication, it's, it's, it's a lot like what Jesus told his disciples why they couldn't deliver that spirit from that little boy. Jesus says, because this kind will not come out without prayer and fasting. So yes, there is a power to that realm, but we have a greater power because we have Christ. So let us go to him. Let us pray. Let us fast. Let us plead and let us stand. And so this is our first point, the principalities and powers. And the reason I wanted to focus to some degree today, beloved, is because this is what we see in the world. When we see our world the way it is, and when we think of America, America was a country in which more people used to go to church than they do today. More people would confess that they had at least some semblance of religion than they actually do today. America is so much exactly like the Samaritans. You meet people out in the streets, they'll say they're religious, but they worship God their own way. You probably read how a lot of young people say they are spiritual, but they're not religious, which means, again, they, they want to have some contact with the divine, but in their own way. That's who the Samaritans were. And along with all of this, witchcraft and sorcery, and you, you know how this is in the rise in a, very, in a very outspoken way. It used to be where it would be more in this kind of civilized way where you can't really tell. But more and more, it's being kind of the screaming kind of manifestations of unclean spirits in our nation. And it, it sinks my heart every time we see those signs of psychic readings. What, what is that? That is on your face, this whole mindset of sorcery and living in ways that are literally serving the realm of principalities and powers. And it's becoming more and more because we're leaving our tenets of truth. Many people aren't going to church anymore. And it's affecting society where the kingdom of darkness has a greater freedom to act and to show itself for what it is. So that is the reality, but we don't stay there. We have our second point, the Prince of Peace. This is what's so precious about this passage. As they, as they are scattered and they enter into Samaria and they find a people who are in this realm of darkness, what they do is they start preaching the word. Verse 5, Then Philip went down into the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. That's what he did. So if you were to ask, well, what do you do to a society that says they're religious, but they're not really God-fearing, and, and where you see so much of... of, of even devil worship and, and a lot of the occult and all of that starting to happen. What do you do? And you hear a lot of people say, no, America's different today, and so you have to, you have to use different methods. Now, there, there's really nothing different. We're just almost going back to what other nations used to be without the gospel. And what did they do? They preached the gospel. And that's the bringing in of the message of the Prince of Peace. How does the Prince of Peace manifest his power? What is it that he does? There's really two main things. The first is salvation, and the second is through his word. Through salvation, and then through the Savior, because that's who the word proclaims. The Savior. I, I want to start with salvation, because see, you cannot wage battle against the kingdom of darkness if you're not already saved. 
Because if you're not saved, you are part of the kingdom of darkness. If you're not serving the Prince of Peace, you are under the principalities and powers. So salvation is drastically essential. See, these believers are in Samaria because they're believers. They're being persecuted for their faith. So they arrive there with salvation. And because they have salvation, they speak about the Savior. And that's what they do. That's the second thing they do. They're they're saved, and then they speak about their Savior. And that's who Christ is. In in, in a sense, it's it's that simple. Here in this passage, we find several phrases that summarize the message of Philip. First, we see in verse 4, preaching the word. And then verse 5, we see it more specific, preached Christ. And then in verse 12, we have that they believe Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. And then they were baptized, so you know he taught about baptism. And so you have all these little indications. Of course, when it says that he preached Christ, that's a summary. It's not saying that he just came and said, let me tell you about Jesus. Um, And what else would he have told about Jesus? Well, see, it's a summary about everything about Jesus. And Jesus taught to be baptized. And so that's why he baptized them. And that's, that's a summary of his message. Now, so they, they were not there talking about their experiences primarily, their individual stories. They were not explaining their ideas of why maybe they were suffering. They weren't dealing with any of that. They, they, were, and they also weren't singling out in what ways they as Jews differed from the Samaritans. No, they, they weren't focusing on any of that. They were preaching Christ. And beloved, that's what we need to do in our society. Our society is, in essence, just like that of the Samaritans. Um, Think of also, even when, when you see how they were so amazed at this one man. Verse 10, this man is the great power of God. And how they were mesmerized, how they would be bewitched by that man, how they were astonished by that man. Don't you find people in our culture, and also it's not just America, it's in Europe also, that's, that's the mind and the heart of people. They'll, they'll look at an actor or they'll look at a politician. They'll look at someone in sports and they are just taken in astonishment by that person. And that person is everything for them. In whatever realm it is, like I said, sports or music or, 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 or in, in Hollywood or in politics, people are taken by people. They seem to be bewitched by it. They are enchanted by it. They are astonished by other people. And they'll talk about how those people are good and how much they do good things. And sometimes it's in the religious realm. And what do we do then? We have a society like that today. Well, we we need to learn with the church in those days in that first missionary movement and just continue the missionary movement and continue to preach Christ. And in our third point that I go um, swiftly into, we we will be looking at this preaching Christ in and of itself. Um, Our third point is seeing the result of the Prince of Peace's kingdom coming upon the realm of principalities and powers and what happened. 
And beloved, this is what's so precious. See, we, we have here in our text that there are these unclean spirits. There's this Simon. He's an amazing person. But we find Philip and we find these people who are scattered. And see, at vis- visibly, looking at it in a visible way, you would think these Christians really have no hope to have any success. They, they are fleeing for their lives. Their hearts are full of sorrow. Maybe some of them experience death. We know the relatives of, of Stephen did. Um, we, we read of how um, they were hailing. Paul is hailing from, from every house, hailing men and women, committed them to prison. So their families who escaped and who they know their neighbors didn't because they're, they're in prison. How could you think of ministry in that condition? Wouldn't you think, well, now, now it's time for me to recover? Now I, I, I need to spend some time. I, I, I have PTSD. I, I, I can't deal with more people that I'm going to have to... What, what if they reject me too? And beloved, this is the astonishing thing. They didn't do that. They preached Christ. You, you find even, even a, a, a great contrast. Here's this Simon and everybody thinks he's the power of God. But Philip is there. And he preaches Christ. And people believe. And the people with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And then we have this blessed result in verse 8. And there was great joy in that city. That's our third point. The great joy in that city. Beloved, if we, if we keep that before us, we are in a world that is very similar to Samaria. Even this, there's a parallel. Many, many among you may, may even be coming from situations that are very full of affliction and with certain elements of difficulty. It is hard for you, for some of us, to think of ministering. What, what does God's Word says for us to do? To preach Christ to preach the things of the kingdom of God and the name of Christ. To preach the word. And, and the word preaching, just the word preaching itself, is very helpful for us to understand the privilege that we have. The word preaching in Greek here would be basically saying evangelize, to, to share the evangel. And the evangel is the good news. So preaching here is giving the good news of Jesus. Boys and girls, that's even what it means to evangelize. It comes from the Greek that means good news, to share the good news. Now, wouldn't you agree that, that a place like Samaria, who's, who's all oppressed by that one man who thinks they think he's the power of God, but really he is serving Satan, and they have a lot of people who are possessed, and some of them maybe they can tell, others they can't tell, but as they're being saved, it's being shown how, how they were under the oppression of darkness. Isn't this a city that needed the good news? And they came with Christ. 
And we are in the same world. Our world needs good news. There, there, is, there are wars and rumors of wars. America has no idea what to do. They, they, they pretend to have an idea. I, I read in an article that they're finally coming up with a name for these people who want to die in essence, but they want to kill so many people. And they call that deaths of despair. Now they're calling it that. Now, now notice what's happening in the human mind. They think now that we can name what is happening, we, we are above all of this sad reality that is taking over us. That's not true. What's even their authority to call that deaths of, of despair? Does that mean we have conquered the hearts of those people? It's a spiritual problem. They need Christ. But see, in their machinations, they're thinking, we're going to find out everybody who's kind of in a despair, and then we're going to find out how we can help them so it doesn't get to that point. See, that's man trying to be like this Simon who is in the kingdom of darkness. He is lost. He has no love for God. He doesn't even understand that there's a a soul behind all these people. What we have is not a political problem. We do not have an education problem. We do not have a social problem. It is a spiritual problem. It is a deeply spiritual problem. These people are lost and they are serving the prince of darkness. They are part of the complex of the principalities and powers. And that's the one key thing about them. They are deceptive. And they'll make you think like you finally understood what the problem is. And you'll try to apply that. It's it's not going to go anywhere. It's only going to make man more proud. More sins are going to be showing out in different ways. Who in our society will rise at a level to say, and in many ways what our nation needs is like a shepherd to guide the whole nation to see we need Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can solve this problem. And now, beloved, look at the good news of all of this. See, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you... you, Beloved, have such a privilege in this world. Not only the privilege that you are worshiping the true God of heaven through His Son, Jesus Christ, but the privilege that you have the message that this dark world needs. There is no hope in anything else. There's no hope in politics. There's no hope in education. Ever since the 1800s, the world and all the academics have been saying, no, the problem that we have in the world is lack of education. As soon as we have education, things will be well. And then two great world wars. And now we have more education. And the world is is kind of at, at, at the throes of a possible third world war. One little thing that goes wrong. And millions of souls may die, and thousands have already died. Has education done anything? Politics? The schools? Academia? Philosophies? Nothing. But you find a city where there were lost people. Scattered people arrive who had lost their livelihoods, who were in exile. They were full of fear in their hearts, full of sorrow. But that's not, no problem at all because they have the message of Christ. They proclaim Christ to the Samaritans in verse 8. And there was great joy in that city. 
That's the joy of the gospel of peace in the hearts of those who have been lost but now are found. And so, beloved, let us use this message that we have. If if you're not saved, you cannot live another day in that condition. You need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to embrace Him. You need to trust Him. You need to believe in Him. You need to serve Him. Because how can you justify living another day in the realm of principalities and power? Why would you be deceived by that ruler who isn't when you could stand with Christ by faith? So the reason, very possible, why many who say they're believers, but they are always falling and falling and just always going back to sin, it could be they have no shield whatsoever, no true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to withstand the wiles of the devil. It'll never work without salvation. If you look at that armor, three parts of them are about salvation. And three parts of them are from where salvation comes. The helmet is the helmet of salvation. And when you are saved, you have an imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And that's the shield. And faith is how you're saved. Sorry, the breastplate is righteousness and the shield is a faith. Those are the three articles that represent salvation. Where does salvation come from? How will you be saved? It is through the word, through believing the gospel. And so we have the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, and the preparation of the gospel. As they walk, they are spreading the news, the gospel of peace. And see, it's exactly what happened. They, they, these were saved people. They had the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and they had the shield of faith. They arrive in Samaria, and what do they do? They share the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and they bring with them the preparation of the gospel of peace. So the people who were at war with God in that city become Christians, and they now rejoice. And so we need to be convinced of these truths so that we'll go to our neighbors and go to our friends and share them the gospel of peace because they need to be saved. None of us know when there will be no more time to work because when it turns night, when Jesus comes back, it'll be too late. Now one more reality is just to apply this to your very heart We have in the text perhaps one of the most simple ways to help you know if you are saved. And there was great joy in that city. I could ask you, do do you know something of this joy? The joy of salvation. And notice the reality. These weren't people that were skipping and dancing kind of joy. Part of the people who had this joy had just left their towns because of persecution. But the believers are full of joy to see others being saved. And it made them almost kind of forget their woes from Jerusalem. But a lot of these joys are people who were serving Satan who are now believers. So this is joy with a lot of tears. I'm not saying that it's a joy where no one is yet weeping. But it's possible for a believer. You can have your afflictions, and we must weep with those who weep. But you will have that abiding joy 
that you belong to Jesus. And come what may, no one can take him away from you. Do you know this joy? A second question is, do you believe in the power of the word of God? Perhaps, beloved, why we don't share the gospel as often as we should and as boldly as we should is because we're not fully believing that it has this power. Do you believe in this belt of truth, in this sword of the Spirit? That's all they did was preach the word, and God's the one who conquered hearts. We don't have that authority. We don't have that power, but we can share the word. And you won't share the word if you don't believe in its power. So do you believe in the power of the word of God? And the last question in terms of application. Do you believe it is the only thing that gives hope to this dark and dreary world? Do you believe that the gospel is the only hope of mankind? Because... This is where even the church is confused. You find churches or denominations saying, we are losing people. Maybe we need to change our approach. And what they're really meaning is change the message. To try to keep people in. To try to be attractive to this world. They think if we speak of sin, people will be um, unimpressed. And they won't really listen to sermons if we're speaking of sin too much. So when churches do that, they are not believing that the message of the gospel is the only hope we have. So you need to believe it. Because if you know this is the only hope, that will be the only thing you'll offer. Christ and Him crucified. Christ as a Savior of men and women, of little boys and little girls. Christ as the one who came as a man and as God. Christ who lived a perfect life and who died on the cross and took our sins upon Him when He was on the tree and who suffered death so that He would save sinners, who was buried and who resurrected and who ascended into heaven. These are the cardinal doctrines that we cannot waver upon and that He is now in heaven interceding for you and for me forever. He will never cease. And that is the message that we give to this needy world. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God Almighty, we thank Thee, Lord, that even though there are these principalities and powers, we thank Thee, Lord, that the Prince of Peace has conquered over them, that there's already been a a declaration of their destruction as we read in Colossians when he died on the cross and when he comes back it will be finalized and be visualized help us Lord to understand that but help us also not to underestimate the power that it does have so help us to be prepared help us to put on this armor of God help us to truly believe in the power of the word Help us to read it. Help us to to equip ourselves with the Bible. We can use a sword, but to have the Bible as a sword, we must consume it and we must know it and memorize it and love it and recite it. So help us, Lord. And we pray that Thou would give us the, the fruit 
of the kingdom of Christ's work in our hearts, this joy that, that is abiding. And we pray, Lord, that we would know this joy and that we would live this joy out and that we would see this joy in the hearts of our loved ones and other, others who may come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.